This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. Listen to what inspired the storyline, how their covers and titles were chosen, their personal connection to the story, and other fascinating tidbits about the authors themselves. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have comments about the podcast or feedback for me, I can be reached at Cindy H. Burnett at att.net. I have thoroughly enjoyed hearing from several listeners recently. John Cribb is a best-selling author who has written about subjects ranging from history to education. His writing has been published in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Chicago Tribune, National Review Online, and several other publications. Old Abe is John's first novel. Abraham Lincoln has been his hero from history since boyhood when he read about Abe growing up on the frontier. John lives in his hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, John. I really enjoyed reading Old Abe, and I look forward to speaking with you about it. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Well, let's start out with you telling me a little bit about Old Abe. Well, it is a historical fiction about Abraham Lincoln, as you might guess from the title. And it basically follows Lincoln through the last five years of his life. So it picks up in the spring of 1860 when he's nominated for president and follows him right on through the end of his life, those last five years, which are among the most tragic years in our our nation's history. But you are at his side, at his elbow, every chapter, every scene as he goes through his presidency and the Civil War. There are some chapters that are iconic events from American history, like the Gettysburg Address or the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. But then there are a lot of those lesser known moments that make a life in full, like the afternoons he's standing over the hospital beds, you know, looking down at the faces of uh, wounded soldiers, both Union and Confederate, or the, the night that the White House stables caught on fire and he rushed out and tried to get in to save uh, his boys' uh, ponies and goats because he knew they were inside. So events like that. But everything that I write about happened. Sometimes I condense events. And of course, I had to leave a lot out. But I really tried to make it as historically accurate as I could. It is, it is fiction, but I, I, did, I really wanted to try hard to give an accurate uh, depiction of what happened uh, during those five years. Why did you decide to write a fictional versus non-fictional account of Abraham Lincoln? Well, uh, a couple of reasons, I guess. First of all, there are thousands of books out there about Lincoln, as your listeners may know. About 10 years ago, somebody started to count all the Lincoln books, and he got up to 15,000, and I think he stopped, because uh, actually, I think more than that. And of course, that was 10 years ago, so there's, there's certainly more since then. They say there are more books about Lincoln than in anybody in history other than Jesus Christ, and that may well be true. But the overwhelming majority of them are nonfiction. And so I wanted to try fiction for a couple of reasons. Number one, because there are a lot of nonfiction books out there about him. I really wanted to try to bring him alive. And as we know, you know, fiction can, can do that in a way that, that nonfiction cannot. So that was one of my, my primary aims in this was to, uh, was, was to bring him alive. Well, the personal aspect of the story definitely resonated with me. What you mentioned a little bit ago about being there with him every step of the way, kind of his perspective of what was happening. I really, really liked that. Great, because I think the fun thing about the novel, that you really learn who he was as a a person. And you learn that through, as I say, those moments that make up a life in full. 
like the, there's a chapter, for example, where he attends a seance with his wife, Mary. Uh, they've lost a son in the White House, Willie, which is just devastated, both of them, but, but her in particular. And she begins to grasp for ways to, to cope with all the loss that surrounds them, not just their son, Willie, but just so much death and destruction that's going on. And spiritualism was very, was very popular at the time. So she starts to consult spiritualists. And uh, so Lincoln is a little concerned about it, but, but he, he goes, he says, well, let's go to, I'll come to a seance with you. So I think it's the opening chapter of uh, part three in the book uh, depicts this, this scene. And it is actually, I draw from, as I do through so much in this book, uh, primary source materials. Uh, one of the uh, people that was at the seance with them uh, wrote about it. So there's a detailed record of it. And then I drew from other other sources, too, to describe seances from that, that time. But this kind of thing that you don't normally really read about in Civil War histories, I think, is what really helps make the character come alive. How did you decide to write about him? Well, I've been a Lincoln fan for a long time, um, really since I was a kid. But it had never occurred to write a novel about him, even though I really I've always wanted to write a novel. I studied, I was an English major in college at uh, Vanderbilt University in, in Nashville. So I'm a literature guy, but I've, and I've been writing my whole professional life, but it's always, it's, for the most part, it's been nonfiction. But in 2006, I checked out of the libraries in Spartanburg, where I live, Spartanburg, South Carolina, a Carl Sandburg's landmark six-volume biography of Abraham Lincoln. Just a, it's probably the most beautifully written of all the nonfiction biographies, especially the first two volumes, the, the Prairie Years, about the, uh, his life before the White House. But I was plowing my way through these these six volumes, and at the same time, I reread Irving Stone's uh, wonderful novel about the life of Michelangelo, The Agony and the Ecstasy, uh, which is an older book. But I'd read that in high school uh, for an AP European history class, and so I decided to reread it. And that got to me to thinking, did you do the same thing for Lincoln that Irving Stone did for Michelangelo? And that was the original idea behind the book, was this kind of Irving Stone, James Michener type of book that would cover Lincoln's whole life from his young, uh, youth on the frontier through the end. And that just proved too unwieldy for me, especially you know as a first-time novelist. But anyway, as it went on, and I cut it and edited it and sliced it, it became the book that it is, Old Age, which is the last five years of his life. That's kind of the, uh, the genesis of it was way back in 2006 when I read uh, those two books. Well, you must have had to do an incredible amount of research. And once you narrowed your topic, I guess that helped a little bit in terms of figuring out where to focus your research. What all did you research? And then how did you decide what to narrow it down to? Well, the research, I guess, took three general forms. First, a lot of book reading. And the last time I counted on my bookshelves in my, my office at home where I work, I had a, about 250 books about and related to Abraham Lincoln. So everything from general biographies about Lincoln to books about life in the Civil War, that kind of thing. A lot of books, old books by people who knew Lincoln and had interactions with him and wrote about that. That kind of firsthand account was invaluable uh, for my work. So a lot of, a lot of books... And then a fair amount of internet uh, research. There's some fantastic Lincoln sites out there, like the Lincoln Papers at the Library of Congress. You can go online and see his original papers in, in his handwriting, you know, digital versions of them, like the, the Gettysburg Address. Like there's a great site called Mr. Lincoln's White House where you can go online and they'll have, they have a, 
a, a map of the White House, a diagram of the floor plan uh, during his day. And you can click on any of the rooms and it'll pull up pictures of what it looked like when he was there and, you know, stories of things that took place in those rooms. So the amount of Lincoln scholarship out there, even long before the internet came along, is amazing. I mean, there have been generations of historians and scholars at work in the field of uh, Lincoln studies. And, and my book certainly would not exist without their efforts. And then a lot of travel that I got to do to Lincoln sites. I've been to you know, every Lincoln site you can think of from his, uh, his birthplace at Sinking Spring Farm in Kentucky to, of course, uh, Ford's Theater he was, where he was assassinated. But places like battlefields he went to and one of my favorite Lincoln sites that your li- listeners might like to visit next time they're in Washington, when, when Washington opens up again, is the Lincoln Cottage or the President's Cottage in Northwest DC. It was kind of a Camp David of its day. It's where the Lincolns spent their summers. It was kind of on the edge of town up in the hills. It was a little cooler, catch some breezes, a little quieter. Lincoln would commute to the White House. It was about three miles from the White House. So he commuted every day. But you can go there. It's open to the public. It's probably not open right now, but when coronavirus is over, uh, you can go and visit it. It's one of these places where you, you literally can come into contact with Lincoln's world because when you go up and down the staircase there, they'll let you put your hand on the, the uh, banister that he uh, put his hand on when he went up and down. So you can literally touch his world, which for a Lincoln geek like me, you know, is a, is a big deal because there are not that many places you can do that. But anyway, walking the territory, the land that he walked in places like Washington or New Salem, of a little frontier village he lived in in, in uh, Illinois. That was invaluable from our research to try to soak up uh, the atmosphere. And often the volunteers, the park rangers, the historians, the docents that work in places like that are real, they are experts in that one slice of Lincoln's life. So their insights were absolutely invaluable to my research. As you mentioned, there are so many books out there, so many websites, locations you can visit, and being able to focus and get your book written. I just think that would be kind of hard, especially in this instance with someone like Lincoln, who is such a prominent figure, so well-regarded and so written about. Yes. Well, it was hard, and I made it probably harder than it should have been. And actually, what what forced me to narrow it down was just the realization there was no way I was going to get the book that I originally had in mind published, which was this gargantuan thousand page, like I say, Jim Mich- James Missioner type book. So I just had to choose. And I, I don't know that his White House years are fascinating, of course, and that's what people really are most interested in. So that's one reason um, I zeroed in on that. And because there's kind of a, a defined beginning and end to it, I begin when he's nominated for president. And then, as I say, follow to the end. That that was a good way to force me to have a, a natural place where I was going to start and a natural place where I was going to end. One of the things I was not aware of until I read your book was that the talk of assassinating Lincoln started almost as soon as he was elected. Yes, as soon as he was elected. He even before he became president, he was elected, of course, in November of 1860. And back then, they, they took office in March. Today, we, we, we did the inaugurations in January. Back then, it was in the month of March. So he had several months there. He stayed in Springfield, Illinois, during those months. Right away, as soon as he was elected, he started getting death threats um, and reports of you know, rumors of assassination plots. There were reports of plots to poison him while he was still in Illinois. And there were reports were reaching him 
uh, from Washington that there were plots to kill him as soon as he got to Washington to shoot him. He got, you know, death threats in the mail while he was still in Illinois. For example, he got a, a painting from South Carolina that showed him with a noose around his neck and his, his feet chained and his body tarred and feathered. When he took the train to Washington, the special train that, that took him to Washington to, to be president, when he got to Philadelphia and they, they pulled him aside and said, we've got a serious problem. There's a plot to, to kill you in Baltimore as you pass through Baltimore. So the, the, the well-known detective, James Pinkerton, met with him. So he decided to change his, his plans. He actually took a separate plane, a train uh, kind of under the cover of night without telling anybody. They, they snuck him onto it. And they basically smuggled him into to Washington to avoid this assassination attempt. Uh, he took a lot of grief for that in the press afterwards, but that's how he came into Washington. Well, it just was interesting to me because, you know, obviously everyone knows how the story ends, but I didn't realize that was something that was from just the second he was elected on was an issue that they continued to try to deal with and avert. Yes. And not to spoil anything for readers, but there's uh, in, in the book, uh, I depict another assassination attempt that that took place while he was president that that narrowly missed him. His good friend Hill Lehman, who kind of served as his he was unofficial bodyguard throughout his administration, was very concerned the whole time he was going to be assassinated. Especially after Robert E. Lee surrendered, he told Lincoln, "You're at you're at more danger now than you have ever been because passions are so high." And uh, I think Lincoln did not did not really believe him, unfortunately. You did a great job of portraying how divisive it was and how divisive it was when the war was at an end and how upset the Southerners were. And I really, that stayed with me when I finished the book. Oh, well, thank you. One of the remarkable scenes to me, and I, I think one of my favorite chapters in the book, is after Richmond has fallen. So this is the very end of the war. Uh, Robert E. Lee's army is still in the field, but Richmond falls, and Lincoln is down at City Point, Virginia, which is a huge Union depot down the Appomattox River from Richmond. And when he hears that Richmond has fallen, he says, I'm going to Richmond. And he gets on a boat with a, about a dozen Marines and a couple of officers, and his young son, Tad, he takes with him, and they go up the James River. And this is a true story. He just he goes, he walks into Richmond and there was supposed to be some soldiers there to meet him, but they didn't realize he was coming when he was coming. And so he's just got this small, you know, group of soldiers around him and he walks through the city. And of course, the city is in a state of shock and it's still burning. There's block after block of, of just burned destruction because as the Confederates uh, evacuated, they, they set some warehouses afire and the, and the fire spread. But the utter defeat and shock of the Southern people, he, he just comes face to face with. And it's the kind of thing that would just obviously never happen in today's world, but it happened. I was riveted by that because yes, it would never happen today. There's no possible way, but that he was able to do that and that he survived it. Yes. And he walked, he, he wanted to see the, the house where the, known as the White House of the Confederacy, where Jefferson Davis and his family lived. And so they, we, we, he found it and they went inside and he sat down and he said, this must be, this must have been President Davis's chair. He kind of got a tour of the house. It's just really unfathomable that, that, that this was going on, but that's, that's what happened. 
I liked the part talking about Mrs. Davis and how she wanted the house left clean and ready for them to show up. I thought that showed a lot of grace on her part. Isn't that great? It is such, it's such a Southern thing. Too. <laughs> you've got to, you have your house ready for your guests, <laughs> even if it's people you've just been fighting. And that's true. That is one of those details that, I mean, I didn't make that up, that the, the people that were in the house with Lincoln, they described all of that. So I drew from all of that. And he, that's what he told them when he got there. He said, Mrs. Davis asked me to have the house ready for you. And of course, there was a much closer connection than, than I think most people realize between North and South. And, and, and these people who were fighting each other, they knew each other. For example, Abraham Lincoln and the vice president of the Confederacy, Alexander Stevens from Georgia, were friends. Uh, they had served in Congress together. They were both Whigs in Congress. And I think Lincoln was very disappointed when Alex Stevens uh, was named vice president and, and took the job. But it's just one example of how complicated this was. I mean, Mary Todd was from a slaveholding family. And so her brothers were fighting for the Confederacy. At one point, her sister, when, when her husband, who was fighting with the Confederacy, was killed, she comes with her daughter to the White House and stays with the Lincolns. So that's, and I hope I've, I've conveyed some of that in the book. Part of the tragedy is that there were, these were, these were people, it really was family against family. It's just not a cliche. You most definitely did. And I think that's partly what made the story so captivating. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because that was my, my point. As I say, my, my, one of my aims was to try to bring him alive as a walking, talking, breathing fellow and the people around him. And not just that stiff image that we see on the penny or, or the $5 bill. And I, as I say, that's why I really wanted to try historical fiction with this. How did you come up with the title for this one? Again, with 15,000 plus books on Abraham Lincoln, there's probably a lot of titles that weren't available. Yes, and titles and covers uh, can be very tough because you got to get a lot of people to agree on them. It took a while to get that. And I had all kinds of titles I tried on this book, everything from just Abraham Lincoln, which is, of course, very boring. And there have been books called Abraham Lincoln. I think the worst title I had was Spirit of Mortal Be Proud. Sounds like a romance novel or something. Done. It's a line from Lincoln's favorite poem that he uh, learned when he was young. But the title, Old Abe, I, th- I was editing the book, and there's a the place where his, his kids, when he's been elected, and they're on the way to Washington, I think, is when they're, they're singing this campaign song that was Old Abe Came Out of the Wilderness. I think it's to the tune of the Old Gray Mare. Old Abe came out of the wilderness, out of the wilderness. And as I was reading that, it just kind of struck me right across that, that nickname, Old Abe, which people called him that uh, during the campaign and it was just kind of a nickname for him. And I thought, oh, well, that's Old Abe. But I thought, well, that's so obvious. Surely there are lots of books called Old Abe. So, of course, I went to Google and, uh, and surprisingly, um, there's not really any book recently called Old Abe anyway. So I jumped on it. That's, that became the title. Well, I think it's a great title, and I was happy while I was reading to come across what you were just describing, where the name came from, to kind of tie in with why you chose it for the title. Yes, good, good. Are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Well, I am. As I say, this book was originally envisioned to be this giant book that takes him from frontier days to his death. So I have a good working manuscript for a book that covers Lincoln's 
time from his teenage years on the Indiana frontier through his Lincoln-Douglas debates. It's a little bit different kind of book because it covers a a longer time period than, than five years. But I'm working on that. I think that there's definitely a book there. It's just a matter of massaging it and editing it and doing the kinds of things you got to do after you get a draft to turn it into a book. So I'm hoping if old Dave does well enough uh, that the publisher will want to do the earlier part of his life. Well, good. Well, I look forward to reading that when it makes its way out into the world. Great. I hope, it, I hope it'll, it'll come to be. What do you like to do when you're not writing or reading? Well, as of this week, my wife and I are, are empty nesters, or temporary empty nesters anyway, because our, we, we have two daughters. One of them is a rising junior at uh, Furman University here in South Carolina, and the other is a freshman at Clemson, also in South Carolina. So we, uh, they just went, uh, they went to capsule, campus a little late because of coronavirus, but they are both on campus now, and hopefully they'll be able to, to stay there through, uh, I think, after Thanksgiving, everybody's coming home. But we're, we're suddenly empty nesters, so we've got, you know, we're kind of rediscovering what to do with, with our free time, although, to be honest, I haven't really had any free time at all since this uh, book has come out. But I like to uh, sail. We have a sailboat, a Catalina 30 on Lake Hart, Hartwell, uh, which is on the Georgia-South Carolina border. border. It's known as the, the west coast of South Carolina. It's a big lake. Like like to to be on the water. A few years ago, my, my daughter Molly and I we kayaked from Spartanburg, which is in the, the right at the foot of the mountains in South Carolina. We kayaked across the state to Charleston, down the rivers to Charleston, which was a lot of fun. Love hiking. We have a place in the North Carolina mountains. So I love hiking, and I don't. I'm not a great cook at all, but I've I've been making lots of salsa this summer. I've become the salsa king with the peppers we've grown in our gardens and the tomatoes. And I made a great uh, killer peach salsa that I've uh, worked up. So that's what, that was one of my summer fun things to do. It's fun to hear things that people have learned to do during the pandemic as life has slowed down a little bit and we're all home more. Everybody's taking on a new hobby and I always enjoy hearing what those are. Yeah, that was mine, making salsa. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good one. Yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what some of your favorite recent reads are. Well, um, this is a little different. These are oldies, but goodies, but they are what I've been reading recently. One of them is really old. It's uh, Metamorphoses by Ovid, which I think was written around 8 AD. And I'm not reading it in Latin, although I did take lots of Latin in school, but it's it's all left me. It's a translation uh, by Rolf Humphreys. And I've had it forever, but it's been forever since I've read it. And it is just one of those wellsprings of Western literature that's worth going back to again and again. It's a long, long poem. A lot of our, the versions of the Greek and Roman mythology that we know of the famous stories, like, you know, Phaeton and the Minotaur, Theseus and the Minotaur, and King Midas and the Golden Touch, are actually come out of Ovid. He retold all of those stories. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. So I've been rereading Ovid, which I haven't read in many, many years, Ovid's Metamorphoses. And the other one is actually an older too, but one of my favorite short story writers in the world is Frank O'Connor, the Irish short story writer. His real name was Michael O'Donovan, but he wrote under the pen name Frank O'Connor. And I'm sure many of you, your readers know him. I first ran across him in college, fell in love with him. I just think he's one of the masters of the art of short story. So every once in a while, I will go back and read through his uh, collected short stories 
So that's one thing I've been I've been doing uh, recently. Yeah, he, he just writes beautifully of the Irish uh, countryside. So if you, I, I would, your if your your listeners aren't familiar with Frank O'Connor and they like short stories, I would highly recommend they check him out because he is he's one of the masters of the 20th century when it comes to short stories. I read a few of his short stories in college, but I haven't read anything by him since then. Yeah, well, it's worth going back and, and uh, rereading him because he really wrote so, so beautifully. Well, I really appreciate your taking the time to join me today. It's been a delight to talk with you about Old Abe. Well, thank you for having me, Cindy. I really loved talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. John's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.